Hi, this is Carol Kaplan, and welcome to My Life with David Cassidy. Today's episode is with Anne Moses. Now, that name may or may not be recognizable to you. Um, Anne was very prominent in the late 1960s and early 70s as the editor of Tiger Beat Magazine. And if you don't know what Tiger Beat Magazine is, well, I guess that tells me something about your age. But that was the foremost teen magazine uh, that really catered to... Um, mostly young girls um, and really helped to raise the visibility and publicize the careers of young TV stars and recording stars, people like David Cassidy. And um, Anne got her start in the late 1960s um, with several groups, including um, the... Forerunners to the Bee Gees, for example, and then the Monkees, and then ultimately on to the Partridge family in the fall of 1970. And she spent quite a bit of time with David Cassidy over the years. Um, so she has a lot to add. Uh, she is the author of a great book about her career, which I highly recommend because it's very readable. It's called um, Meow exclamation point. Um, My Groovy Life with Tiger Beats Teen Idols by Ann Moses. Um, And so we're going to break this up into two parts. And here you go. Um, Ann Moses, former Tiger Beat editor, author, and expert on teen culture in the 1960s. Enjoy. Oh, that sounds good to me. I didn't realize it until you know, the past few years that that I, in fact, am an expert on those topics. But, hey, that's the way it went. <laughs> and what a what a great uh, title to have. So tell me, just before we get into talking about David, and I know everybody's very excited to hear your memories of David, just mm-hmm. set it up for us so that we understand how you ended up in that position where you were the one that was covering David on a daily basis. Uh, How did you get into that business? Well, I was, I was um, like many other girls, uh, uh, you know, my age, uh, I had gone to uh, a a year of junior college after college. Um, Not, not a lot of girls in my class. I was, I graduated in 64. And in those days, I mean, the girls didn't even meet with the guidance counselors. It was only the boys, you know? (laughs) So, um, but, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, my interest in those days was in journalism. I, I planned to get a degree in journalism, but I got waylaid by Tiger Beat Magazine. I had, um, I had just happened to do an interview with the Dave Clark Five when I was a volunteer usher at Melodyland, which was a theater in the round across the street from Disneyland. And that led to a phone call from a young woman who was doing a music newspaper in Southern California. I I grew up in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. And And it was called Rhythm and News. And it was mostly about blues artists. That was their focus. But 
That's okay. Do you, yes, do you, I'm. I'm. I am sorry. That was Gracie, okay. and Gracie had to interrupt the show. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Listen, don't don't worry about that. Okay. Um, what we, we, we can do is we'll we'll start from the top, and um, we'll start from the beginning. But don't if she barks again, honestly, don't worry about it. Just say okay. that, that's Gracie. All you right. Know, just, well, I'm 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 getting them relocated. There we go. I'm sorry. Uh, so, so, so I got a call from a woman who uh, started this music newspaper, Rhythm and News, and she started sending me out on assignments, and uh, they were predominantly um, uh, stories on black artists of the time, like James Brown, like the Miracles, like the Temptations, um, and then I met I met another writer during that time, and this is this is the summer of '65, and she said, "Boy, I'd sure like to write. You know, I'd like to get paid. Number one, and and of course, I wasn't being paid. It was just the fun of of going and interviewing these people, and and then it occurred to me, well, I'd like to get paid for doing this too. Why not?" And and I really I literally had never heard of Tiger Beat magazine, and its first issue was published in September of '65. But uh, that young woman said to me, "Yeah, I'd like to write for Tiger Beat," and that got me to go to the newsstand and buy a copy. And I had been doing interviews with many of the groups that were represented by Derek Taylor, who used to be the publicist for the Beatles. But then he was doing, he had moved to Hollywood and he had his own PR firm and he was the the PR representative for the Beach Boys, Paul Revere and the Raiders, all the groups that were on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. And I was, and whenever I would write a story, I always made sure that the artist got a copy and that that their agent got a copy. I just felt that was kind of my way of saying thank you for arranging the interview and doing the interview. And so as a part of doing that, I was at Derek Taylor's office in Hollywood and I was dropping off a copy of, of one of my stories. And um, I said, do you know anybody over at Tiger Beat? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> you know, I write a monthly column for them. And I said, could you make a phone call? Could you introduce me to someone over there? Well, long story short, he called the the editorial director. He said, I have Anne here in my office. And he said, well, if she can be over here in a half an hour, you know, I'll be happy to meet with her. And I mean, I totally wasn't expecting that. It's not like I had a resume printed up in the car. And... um, I went to an interview and he said, write us a couple stories in Tiger Beat style. And so I did that over the weekend and I was back in the office on Monday after my classes were over at junior college. And he said, well, we'd like you to come to work for us. And so my last semester of college was um, I was working 20 hours a week in Hollywood and then I had been accepted to to um, San Jose State College, and which was a really good journalism school. 
And I never made it because Chuck Lauffer sent me on tour with Paul Revere and the Raiders and Dino Desi and Billy and the Standells. And and I just thought, oh, I'm not ready to give this up. (laughs) (laughs) Can't say I blame you. No, it was it was it was an easy decision at the time. It's like, you know, I didn't think anything could compare to that. And I've always had mixed feelings about that. I didn't you know, go back and get my degree years later. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and uh, you know, I, I did get an incredible education, though, working at the magazine. I, I, would, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Of course. So you worked with some pretty big names even before you got on to the Partridge family, right? Yes. And, I mean, that was because of, of Tiger Beat. And they, they, had, they had started out. Uh, Chuck Lawfer, the publisher, had been the editor of Teen Magazine, and he had started Teen. And uh, but that was more fashion, and you know, it's more like Seventeen Magazine. Uh, in that it, it was it there was very little on on any of the Hollywood stars. And besides Sixteen Magazine, there really was no coverage of the teenage. They were still covering, you know. 30-year-old actors that were, you know, acting in movies, and and it was really hard to get information. So um, Tiger Beat really just filled that role of being exclusively, you know, they felt their target audience was teenage girls, and what we ultimately came to understand was that it was also many, many preteens, and then many, many males. And, and I didn't really realize that part of it until, uh, you know, until the Internet became a thing. And, and I was, you know, just getting responses to, to posts I would put up. And all these, these men wrote and said, oh, yes, I read my sister's copy. Oh, yeah, I, I had a stack of Tiger Beats in my room growing up. And so that was that was news to us. <laughs> Interesting. So tell me, who who did you report on, and who did you meet um, in addition to David Cassidy over the years? Um, well, the the bigger ones, like I like I said that that summer of '66, I was on tour um, two times with the. With Paul Revere and the Raiders, and they were an incredible show band. And then I was also during that time, I was, you know, going to the Monterey Pop Festival and just anything that was going on in Hollywood, I was the one that they sent out because the woman had been that had been doing a lot of writing for Tiger Beat, she, uh, her name was Lottie Powell. And she just tended to want to stay in the office. She was older than I was. And so she wanted to be in the office doing those things. And I was more than happy to spend my day away from the office. But I guess the the biggest stars that came along uh, were the Monkees. Their TV show debuted in um, September of 66. And so from that point on, I was out on the monkey set three days a week. 
So they were really my introduction to what it was like to cover teen idols. Um, just and of course they grew and grew and grew, and we were there to capture every moment of it. So that they were huge. And then when the Monkey Show went off, just about that time, um, Here Come the Brides, starring you know Bobby Sherman, was the teen idol on that show. And then he took off as the next huge teen idol. And, and. Then, then the one after Bobby, of course, was David Cassidy. So tell me about that. So you you um, are assigned to go cover uh, David Cassidy on, on the Partridge family. Um, tell me about like the first time you met him and what your impression was. Well, um, we our uh, publisher Chuck had had gone to a preview of the Partridge Family. And and just like with the monkeys, he was convinced that this was going to be a huge show for the teen audience because, you know, he could see in David all those qualities that made a teenage star. You know, the 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 beautiful face, the great long hair, you know, he was slim. So he just he's and the fact that he could sing, that was, you know, that's double the fun so it was you know he he was the complete package and so we just knew going out that we by that time we we were somewhat formulaic is that the right word formulaic (laughs) we had a formula you know we wanted to do their life stories all the baby pictures we could get our hands on because those were just you know naturally they were a favorite with with our readers, you know, and I was as susceptible as they were. It's like, who can resist a baby picture of a, of a teen idol? You know, it was like, Oh, they're so cute. (laughs) And so um, going out there though, I, you know, I had, I had the background of the the, uh, other stars I had worked with and I really didn't know what, what to anticipate with David. At that point in time, you know, I was three years older than David and I had some history in the business. And so I I didn't look at things exactly as I did in the monkey days, kind of with stars in my eyes. But at the same time, I knew we needed to get this information. And and my my style had always been to just be very friendly and and open and let them know that that you know I'm not I'm not threatening in any way. And yeah. and it was it was interesting because years later my friend Sharon Lee who also wrote about uh, David and she was an associate editor and she said David told me that he was afraid of you. And I said, "What? What are you talking about?" And it, she said, it's because you were the editor. And I don't know what he had conjured up in his mind, but, I mean, I really was friendly. We weren't out to write anything bad about a teen idol, so I don't know what, what had caused that. But that was, of course, years later. So when we first met, I, I got to meet the entire uh, Partridge family on my first day on the set. 
And and David was the last one I would meet. So I I did start out meeting Shirley. And to me, that was just huge because I, growing up, the big, big event for our family was to like drive to Hollywood. Well, we drive to Los Angeles to Chinatown and have Chinese food at a great restaurant. And then we'd go to a big musical like West Side Story or The Music Man or so Shirley Jones was she was an idol to me she was a big recognizable name oh absolutely and 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 just and so I was more nervous meeting her then I met the kids of course and and they were a little bit shy they they were not seasoned professionals and so they were a little bit shy meeting but but at the same time, they're they're child actors. They're somewhat outgoing. Certainly, Dan and Bo- Danny Bonaduce was not shy, and uh, and uh, it just so I met them, and then I got to meet David, and I can't remember if he shook my hand or if he kind of gave me a hug. Uh, you know, sets were pretty casual that way, and. You know, at first he was just wonderful, super cooperative. Whenever I would would say, oh, you know, between the next take, can can I ask you a few questions? You know, I, I always, you know, had to get lots of autographs because we would reproduce their autographs on the color pinups and in other stories and things. So there were always things that I was after when I was out there. And at first it just went very smoothly. I think, I think at that point in time, David was kind of taken by the fact that, that there I was, and I'm sure a lot of others, um, asking questions and delving into his past and asking him his opinion on a million different subjects. So he, I think he was flattered at that point in the thing. Uh, then that changed as time went on. Okay, so so how did that manifest itself? How could you tell that something changed? Well, after a few months, I would say. It, it was probably three or four months. And, I mean, it's not like we were there constantly. I mean, I would go out to the set one or two days a week, and of course, I would also be talking to Susan Day and to Susan's guardian and finding out things about Danny. And and certainly we didn't write about the other cast members as much, but we did produce the Partridge Family magazine. So there was a lot of talking to the other ones also. But it's not like we were constantly hounding David. But what I didn't have a handle on at the time was the fact that Maybe every time I wasn't there, there was somebody else who was, you know, getting as much info as they could. And so so he's the only reporter there. Uh, You you know, certainly when I would go out, I was the only one. But but, you know, I realized that I was not the only one on the other days when I wasn't there. Right. And so he began to kind of disappear on me. I mean, I'd be out on the set and I'd 
I'd see that he was doing a scene and, and previously it would be like, okay, well, we're in the middle of this, you know, questionnaire that you're filling out by hand, or we're in the middle of, you know, we're in, you're 10 years old in your life story and I want to keep going. Um, and, but he, he would just disappear when his scene would be over and it's like, Hey, what's going on? And he would go off to his dressing room and, and it was really not etiquette to, go and knock on his dressing room door without just comfortably being out on the set with him. That, Mm -hmm. that was not the protocol. So I didn't do that, but sometimes I'd leave without everything I wanted to accomplish. So why he was leaving? Oh, he was just, he was totally uh, fed up with never having a moment to himself. Because he he was on the set, he was working, and then when he got off the set, he would have to answer questions. Exactly, exactly. So, so and I'm and he, I, and as I say, not just mine. You know, I don't think mine were that big a deal. But multiply that by, you know, whatever number you choose, and I'm sure he was just getting tired of the same old thing. Right. But and what we read in his book was that some of that time. Um, he was going back to his dressing room because there were some sexcapades going on, shall we say. Uh-huh. That there were <laughs> there were girls sneaking onto the set. So did, did you have any clue of that? I did not. I I also read his autobiography and, and it had quite a few revelations in it. And 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 I wasn't privy to some of that stuff because I wasn't out there snooping around. It's like if 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 David wasn't just popping over and finishing what we were working on that particular day, you know, that was unusual, but I wasn't like tracking him down. I would just divert my attention and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for why is he doing this? It it just, he was just doing it. And, and I got a little frustrated because I wasn't getting everything we needed and so I went to my publisher and I said, David's, you know, he, he's kind of being a jerk. He, he just, he won't cooperate. And of course he, Chuck had contracted with, with screen gyms to, to have the rights to the Partridge family magazine and monthly columns by David and Susan, which we wrote, but we wrote based on, you know, in, in their first person language. Right. But, it was from real interviews. It's not like we just made up the column every month. It was it was their answers to a question, and maybe we might expound upon it. But it it was it was the real thing. So all of a sudden we weren't getting this. I said to Chuck, you know, can you can you help me out here? Can you make a phone call and and see if you can encourage him to you know realize that we need to do these things? And he goes, I'll take care of it. And I really didn't know what his plan was. But as it turned out, his plan turned out to be that he called up Jack Cassidy and he said, you know, can you have kind of a man-to-man talk with David and explain the facts of life to him? And what Chuck meant by that is, you know, David was obligated to, to do a certain amount that he wasn't feeling like doing and he wanted his dad to impress this upon him. And he 
So Chuck's offer to him was that he would buy um, his brothers, his stepbrothers, um, motorbikes. And, I mean, to this day, it it still kind of, you know, gives me goosebumps that his dad would kind of sell him out. In other words, yeah, he would have a talk with him because he snagged two motorbikes for, you know, Sean and I forget the other brother's name. I'm sorry. Uh, Patrick and Ron. Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. And, um, and so. So this was like some payola. Exactly. Going on. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And, and it totally worked. I mean, Jack Cassidy, you know, we don't know how he fulfilled his part, but, but after Jack Cassidy talked to him, uh, then David was, David was very cooperative with us, you know, and not, you know, I'm not sure he was feeling all that comfortable with it and I'm not sure he was happy about it, but he certainly didn't act in a begrudging way. He, he just, he kind of made him realize, you know, just go with the flow, get these things done, and and it'll be good for everyone. So, but, but but Jack did it because he had an ulterior motive. Oh, for sure. There was something in it for him and his sons. That's correct. His other sons, yeah. That's correct. Which, you know, that was our first ind- indication of how, or it was my first indication of of how messed up. Uh, this father-son relationship was because I grew up in a very, you know, leave it to beaver, not only time, but my family was like, you know, a TV sitcom. It was just so normal. It was boring. And, and so to have a, a father react that way, I mean, it, I was taken aback by it. It was like, Oh my goodness. You know, I, I wouldn't want my dad to do that to me. And and so we 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 kind of learned from that. But after they had that talk, David was cooperative, and even though he might have resented it somewhat, he, you know, he just did what he needed to do, and and you know that made my work easier. It it certainly was a benefit to our readers because, you know, our readers were clamoring for every little thing they could could. You read about David and hear about his life. And so it was, you know, and then we, we did interviews with his mom and he would say, now you have to, David would say, you have to say uh, my mom's name and you have to put that she's an actress if you're going to use her name. And we'd go, that's fine. No problem. And, so we just went on doing our thing, and David cooperated when we threw his 21st birthday party at the Tiger Beat offices. And, you know, it wasn't his real birthday party, but he certainly went along with it, and he opened gifts from fans. And and then, you know, I know some of those young ladies that made some of these little treasures, these handmade treasures, whether it was a it was a, a macrame plant hanger or whether it was a pillow or whatever they had made for him, they could, some of them could see that those actually got to him, even though he, he didn't take them home with him. Uh, um, so they, 
you, you brought up um, his parents, mm-hmm. and there, there's been a lot made of his relationship with his parents. In, in fact, you, in an article that you wrote for CNN.com, mm-hmm. mentioned that um, he, he didn't seem to have a lot of parental guidance. Tell me about that. Well, because because he and his mom moved out to Hollywood, I think when he was in like junior high, I you know, I don't remember all the facts now. And and he did go to high school there. Um, it's just that that she was having her own life problems. She was trying to find work. I don't I don't think she was a particularly happy person. She she wasn't strong on her own. And I think uh, I think back in those days, this was this was the uh, late 60s, early 70s that there weren't that many women that were able to be strong on their own and be satisfied with that. Because she was she was essentially a single mother. Oh, definitely. Well, yeah. since David was very small, you remember. I mean, so he was in his little years. He they lived with her parents. Right. So he had. So there were three generations there. But then when she moved out to L.A., she didn't have her parents there anymore. So right. when he was in his teen years, um, at a time when kids are going through an awful lot of changes, um, he didn't have that extra guidance there. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, um, what that was like for him growing up and how that impacted his relationship with her, if at all. Well, I think he always looked upon his mom as being the stable one, as being there for him because she was supportive of his his life. But at the same time, she had her own struggles and I feel like she 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 wasn't in a position to to just stay on top of everything he was doing. He was basically kind of turned loose in his his high school years. And and what kid is going to come out of that without some some baggage? You you just the decisions you make as a teenager just are you know they're 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 narrowly focused because your world is narrow at that point and to, you know and then to go from this he's done a couple of tv shows you know he's played played in a garage band and then all of a sudden he's an overnight superstar and not just in the US but all over the world and it it's just i mean Think of how overwhelming that would be. And nothing in his experience prepared him for that. Yes, his dad was a a movie, a Broadway star, a TV star. His stepmom was. His mom was an actress who had worked on and off. That in no way prepares you for what was about to come for him. The, the 24-7 having to be on having to be, you know, you, you, you have nowhere to hide. You have nowhere to be alone. And, and if you are alone, it's like, you know, what's going through your head. I mean, I can't even imagine the, 
the responsibilities they piled on that young man were just it was almost criminal. I mean, I I got to see firsthand how the monkeys dealt with their success. But the monkeys, you know, they each had one fourth of what was going on. And they had the beasts. Yes. They had each other to to share all this with what the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And and there are all those things involved. And David, you know, yes, he was close with his roommate Sam Hyman, but that's it. Right. And, he, and so, I mean, were the were the mother and father, um, Jack and Evelyn, were were they just hands off? I think they I think they really didn't have any concept of what he was going through. And because they didn't have this super tight, you know, I can discuss anything with my parents. He didn't have that kind of a relationship. And so he couldn't go to them. He couldn't even explain to them, I don't feel. And, and these are my personal opinions. It's not like I was privy to this. But it, it seemed to me that he could not go and talk to them and say, how do I handle all this? How do I handle getting two hours sleep and then I have to be back on the set and I'm working a, a 12 or 14 hour day? You know, how do I cope with this? And I mean, the kids should have been talking to a psych- psychologist or a psychiatrist at that point in time. I mean, a year in. And he had no one. I mean, the only other person that I can even closely compare uh, with what David experienced was Elvis Presley. That, you know, Elvis was not part of a group. It was just him. Yes. Um, But even Elvis seemed to have more of a support structure. Well, you know, it was his parents. He was he was doing this. You know, Elvis was. He was was trying to do this to to show how much he loved his mom. I mean, when he made his first record. So and and it was interesting touring Graceland. You see that his father. Uh, I, I talked to one of the archivists, and she said, you know, thank God for for his dad because he saved every piece of paper. I mean, if you if you go to Graceland, you can see the. The, the, the handwritten receipt for the $12,000 swing pool that he had put in. You, you see all these things. So can, you can imagine his dad was watching over every detail. And even under those circumstances, he was totally, you know, ripped off by Colonel Parker. But, you know, certainly not to a degree of the things that were happening to David. You yeah. know, da- David, David... I think at the time he felt secure because he had observed his manager, Ruth, manage the careers of his dad and Shirley Jones. And he he felt he was in good hands. Totally. And, you know, come to find out in his autobiography that she trusted his money, the investments and all these things that should have by rights set up David for life no matter what he did, um, and and it was all ripped off. I mean, it was it was it was not the first Hollywood star who had been ripped off by 
the CPA or the business manager. And and Ruth did not do anything wrong, I don't feel, intentionally. It's just that she didn't have the expertise that that was so important. And this is what I don't understand. I mean, I realize that these were people that did not have college educations, but they were certainly worldly people. Certainly Jack and um, Shirley were very worldly people um, that I think had some obligation to make sure that David's business affairs were being properly managed. And, you know, it, and, it, and it turned out that no one was taking care of his affairs. I mean, certainly he didn't have a grasp of, of what was happening. And, I mean, he wouldn't have had time. No, he didn't. You know, he was working all the time. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they, they really, I said this in the, the interview for, on CNN's How It Really Happened, and they worked that kid to death. I, I have never seen anything like it. I mean, I saw the monkeys having personal lives in addition to their work life. Same thing with Bobby Sherman and 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 just about everybody else I came into contact with. They they had a life beyond the fame. And David never had that luxury. And I mean, in, in his life, it, it would have been a luxury. They they. I mean, it's really sad because. Did you see the impact of that on him at that time? Uh, I I just I I felt like I was watching him lose himself. He he just he did everything that he had to do, but you didn't see him ever doing anything that brought him joy. And I know all the documentaries that I've seen, they said he was truly happy on stage. And I do feel like he loved it once he got that that moment on the stage. I mean, I mean that he he was getting no validation from his dad. Uh, I'm, I'm sure his m- mom, you know, I'm sure Evelyn was praising him and telling him how great he was doing. Uh, and then, and then Shirley, I, I think she played a very neutral role and, and she was kind to David, but did not care about him. Like she cared about her, her own sons. And so the only place he really got that validation was on the stage when the entire, you know, 60,000 people in a, in an arena are cheering for him. But then what happens when you step off the stage? It's that there has to be something else. There has to be something beyond that. And nobody allowed David the time or they didn't allow him time to even think of what he might like to do to chill out to mellow out. Um, I know uh, we paid for he and Sam Hyman to go to Hawaii for a week, as long as our photographer could tag along. And I think he had an absolutely wonderful time because, yes, our Kenny Lou was there. He was taking pictures, but what, maybe an hour a day? 
the rest of the time, the two of them were on their own. And I, I think, you know, he should have had those paid for by screen gyms, you know, every every quarter, whatever, you know. I'm I'm just going on here, but yeah, I mean it's 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 it almost was hard to he see. He didn't have time to really be a young adult. Not uh, not at all. He, he just went straight from high school to a working adult who's paying taxes, owned a home, um, and and all the other responsibilities of adulthood mm-hmm. without ever really having a chance to enjoy it all. None of the perks. I mean, he couldn't yeah. go out to clubs. He couldn't, he couldn't, uh, what did other people young do? Go to the beach, you know, hang out. There, all that was taken away. He was, you know, he became a prisoner in his own home, you know, much like Elvis, as you've alluded to. In that regard, I think there's a lot of similarities. But, but as a result, you know, he said, I always wanted to play a different kind of music and my own music. You know, he didn't have a, time to sit around and write songs i you know i observed a lot of other artists that that were writing songs and and you know doing creative things he was not allowed that privilege and then when he did you know after the partridge family was over and i i i just don't think he understood you know it's like where do I go from here? What do I do next? And again, the, there were no guidance. There wasn't a parent or a loved one saying, well, why don't you try this? Or you've always said you wanted to do X. Now's the time to do it. It's, you know, he was he was just... I mean, I recall in in his autobiography that he said that his father told him never turn down work and that David initially felt that this was sort of um, a silly sitcom that was maybe not going to be the type of work that he really imagined for himself. So I'm just wondering, do, do you think it was a mistake for David to take that role? Boy, that's that's a tough question. Um, knowing, you know, knowing what we know now, I don't know. That's a that's impossible. It, it, you know, it's. Let, it's let me it, ask it a different way. Then, mm-hmm. I mean, I, do you think that David would have had the same level of, or even close to the same level of professional success? Um, that he had had it not been for the Partridge family. You know, I tr- I I don't uh, think he would have had the same success simply because there's not the same exposure. I mean, the monkeys got the the formula. They they wrote the formula in stone how how to have a successful. Okay. You know, trifecta, the TV show, the records and the live appearances. And and had he not had that, had he gone on, you know, maybe he would have starred in a dramatic show when he was a little older. I don't think he would have been a star at that age. You know, if he had continued to do guest spots in acting, he might have had, 
his own TV show. You know, maybe something like um, um, Susan Day did. You know that she you know went into to the L.A. law rule. Uh, so I think he. But then where would the where would the music have come in? How how would people have ever become aware? of his musical talents and because what that, that wasn't a goal of his not no I think I think that was later I think it was it was after he had had this experience of having hit records and singing that he wanted to make his kind of music music that spoke to him but I I don't I don't know if he felt that he accomplished that in the work that he did you know, years after. I mean, he had he had the tremendous success in Vegas, and you know, you think that well, that that should have brought happiness, and I don't know if it did. Did it make him happy? Why did he always seem to be sad and struggling about things? It was a sense I think that those of us who were true fans always sensed. So we'll take a look at that and plenty more in part two of our interview with Ann Moses next week. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. <laughs> 